And welcome to, or welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? Steve, you know, we're here to give the people what they want. That's all we do. And we don't go just like we said before, the superficial layer. We don't even go to pro, but we go, we go heavy. We go deep. We go boss layer, God layer. We level people up. And speaking of leveling up, you just... Uh, Went to a very esteemed conference and were the uh, the host of a panel. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I'm curious to hear everything and anything that you found of interest from the Sloan conference that you recently attended. All right. So we'll go behind the scenes here. I was uh, part of one panel, hosted another panel at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It's a very big conference, especially in the NBA and team sport world. And... Uh, focuses heavily on analytics, but I was on, I was on two panels. One, I was with uh, WNBA star Sue Bird and then um, president of the Celtics, Brad Stevens and author Michael Lewis. And that was on clutch and performance and choking in sport. Mm. Mm. And that was fascinating because um, it was just cool to hear the others experiences and all I walked away with that. What kind of experience that really stood out with you or something novel? I mean, the big one to me is like how much our story and our head matters. Mm. Mm. Right. So like Sue and Michael Lewis's expert interview, but he got Sue Bird to come out and, and talk about like, you know, from a young age, like she quickly learned how to, if she missed or failed to like brush it off, move on. Right. And then you you taught and and you you listened to how she dealt with like she had this wonderful quote Michael Lewis asked like have you ever choked and she goes no but I've missed a lot and 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 I think that like framing is so important because she's saying like no like missing failing losing like yeah it sucks but it's not the be all end all I'm, it's gonna happen which that doesn't put the added like, oh, this is it. Like, if I don't do this, you know, I'm a failure, blah, 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 that we all concoct in our head. Like, it was very clear she was comfortable with missing and like still taking the next shot, right? Or or doing whatever have you. And then the other part in that panel that was really interesting was um, Brad Stevens. When he was coaching, he just talked about, you know, the thing that he tried to do was if he gave off a calm presence, he was like, my athletes are going to be calm. So instead of the like yelling, screaming, whatever, you know, in the high pressure situation, he was like, my goal was to just be calm, speak in a soft voice, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that jives with the latest science, which we know is like motivation is contagious. And I think often in coaching, we forget that, right? We go nuts or pace, pacing anxiously before the race. And if an athlete sees that, like they're more likely to be anxious before the race or the game or what have you, or during it. So the vibe you're getting off is really important. And then the other, the other panel I was on um, was had a, a elite marathoner, um, uh, NASA astronaut and Navy, former Navy SEAL, and then the coach of the Norwegian triathlon duo who dominate everything. And I got to tell you, John, so this one I thought was going to be, I mean, the conference was about data and uh, analytics. 
And we talked about that a little bit, but surprisingly, we centered on, we came to the conclusion and everyone independently came to this, which is like, it's the human element that makes the difference. And, you know, e- even uh, the the triathlon coach, Olaf, he was essentially said, you know, I've, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, getting from, you know, good to national class, that's easy. We know how to do that. Like, I know how to do that, the training. But he's like, from that national to that, like, world elite level, like, that's the hard part. And that's the human component. And I think that was again, another kind of brilliant insight of like, we get all, and he also mentioned in that, again, he's like the physiology, like data nerd measure everything. Um, but when we talk, when he talked about, well, how do you know how to adjust a athlete's workout? And people were like, you know, HRV or blah, 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 or these other measures. And he's like, my, my number, my number one thing is to ask them essentially how they feel, right? And it's like HRV is like, that's number four or five down the list, whatever. And I found that, again, kind of insightful and lightning, which is like, we can go crazy on this stuff. But at the same point, um, it comes down to the human component. And the other highlights, I think, from watching and talking to other people is, um, I, I think there's got to be some interesting insights in sport, especially with AI and stuff for getting better at the workout design and monitoring and measuring that we haven't exploited in, in, in endurance sport yet. But at the same time, I think, you know, the, the kind of message I got is it's like, there's, you have to balance that out with understanding like what you can't, and can't measure. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the clutch performance or panel I was part of is if you look at clutch performance is the data kind of shows that it's kind of like, uh, like, you know, it's not like, oh, you're Michael Jordan, you perform in the clutch. The data shows you perform in the clutch better and are more likely to perform in the clutch better. So from a data analytics st- standpoint, they're kind of like, ah, clutch performance, whatever. But what we know is it's not about the clutch performance. It's more of like a clutch state. So think of it like a flow state. Like if I sit down to write, if I'm in flow, I'm going to crank. If I'm not, like I'm still going to perform, right? And it's not like I can get in flow every single time I'm going to sit down to write. It's just impossible. The same thing is true with kind of like being in clutch. There are performance states where it's kind of like flow. We get in it and we're going to come through in the clutch. But every clutch, every situation that is like pressure filled, we're not going to get in that clutch state and we're still going to have to figure out how to perform, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like that nuance there of like what we can measure versus what we can't and understanding that. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's refreshing to hear that, right? Because oftentimes what gets portrayed in the media or trickles down is like this excessive compulsive, you know, uh, focus on analytics and the data and the numbers. And, hey, if you buy this thing that measures this and this thing that measures this, then, you know, that's the guaranteed quickest, most effective path to the top. But it, it goes back, right? I was minding, you know, even with these highly... Um, uh, 
you know, analytical metrics that say, yeah, the Norwegian triathlon coaches uses with lactate, it's positioned as like, oh, we measure lactate all the time. So we know definitively what's going on. But Dr. Carl Farst's work and everyone else's for years have verified that RPE is just as good, if not a better measure <laughs> of the athlete's internal condition at the moment. And all you have to do as a coach is ask. Like I was doing this the other day at the track with my high school athletes, like we were doing the 400 meter drill. So we're in the first two weeks of the high school outdoor season here in Oregon. And so the first two weeks is just what I call familiarization period, where we are familiarizing ourselves with all the tools and workouts and types of stuff we're going to exploit for fitness gains and uh, competitive um, improvements throughout the year. So we have the 100 meter drill, which is basically I call it the Rono drill, stride the straights, jog the turns, right? 200 meter drill, a lot of people uh, know it as the Prefontaines, you know, 200 or 3040 drill, where it's like 200 meter fast, 200 meter float. And then we have the 400 meter drill, which again is uh, kind of based off of Henry Rono or Frank Shorter type concept where it's like you're in four meters at a steady pace. And for these kids, it was their current 3K pace. And then your recovery is standing, walking recovery at the start finish line, but half the time duration that took you to run the 400. So if you're in, let's say 10 minute 3K pace 80, you have 40 seconds recovery. That's where we start off. And then we slowly and surely progress it from 80 or from 40 seconds recovery, 35 seconds, 30 seconds to by the time we get to the end of the track season, they're taking about 15 seconds recovery. Stop. Just basically catch your breath, you know, deep breath in, shake it off, get ready to go for the next one. Right. And so we were doing this for the first time. Like, I don't know their paces. I don't know anything. Like I got a bunch of new freshmen and sophomores. I'm like, all right, we're going to ballpark it. And everybody, I want you guys to try to run, you know, for the women, we start off for all the women at hundred seconds per lap, right? Not nothing wild and crazy for the guys who started at 80 seconds per lap. And we're just going to take half the recovery. And I said, okay, what we're going to do is a minimum of six laps and we can slice them and dice them as we need in terms of sets, maximum of 10 laps, slice and dice however you want. And so, you know, we started off with like packages of three. So I'd say, all right, three laps, then a break three laps, then a break. Checked in. Hey, how's your appetite? Hey, what do you think? Hey, this and that. Okay, coach, uh, I think I can do one more lap. Okay, give it one more shot and then we'll check in. You know, and so we got through it and what happened? Well, some athletes would be like, oh, coach, I, I, I'm I, tired. I'm exhausted as they got to lap six or seven or eight, right? And I was like, okay, do you think you can do maybe 200 meters with the group and then you can drop out at 200? And then, you know, every one of the kids expressed like a hesitation or doing one more rep said, yeah, I can do 200. And this was five different kids, right? And what happened at 200? They didn't drop out. They kept going with the group. And then I'd be like, whoa, how'd you, what'd you do? Like, I made a big deal of it, like a breakthrough, right? Like, whoa, what you, I thought you were gonna drop out at 200. Oh my gosh. Like, that's just amazing. Like, and all of a sudden, like they, they got to explore and see, like giving a little extra effort, even though they were, you know, dealing with a little bit of fatigue in the moment wasn't it was non-fatal it didn't hurt <laughs> it wasn't as bad as they thought but through that dialogue and exchange listening to as mike smith says listening to how they're moving oxygens i mean they were breathing heavy they were definitely in that kind of like upper end of the lactate you know spectrum right um you know maybe over their threshold their higher end lactate threshold um but they did it and they had this sense of accomplishment and pride and enthusiasm i did not take any lactate testing I did not check their pulse. We just had conversations, 
but the end result was one, they got a lot of good quality volume in, in a flux um, style um, session. And two, they walked away saying, oh my gosh, I can do more than I think. I mean, for like the what eighth day of practice, week two here in the middle of the, the, the start of the track season, <laughs> that's a pretty big, <laughs> yeah. I mean, pretty big step for them to take, right? Right. So, had, but had we just been number oriented and be like, oh, your lactate, it's, it's at six millimoles now, you better stop the workout or else they wouldn't have gotten that human component that's saying I can do a little bit when I have this feeling of difficulty that I'm experiencing inside somatically, I know now I can push a little harder because I have a little bit more to give than I think. And that's the key learning. Yeah, you know, that's spot on. And I was talking to one, um, one general manager of NBA team and about this asking about analytics, and he put it pretty simply, he said, you know, if you watch the coaches and what they're saying now versus what they're saying 20 years ago, they're saying the same things, essentially. They're coaching in the same or similar while style out there on the basketball court. Mm. The difference is, the one difference is they're, they're more correct now, meaning mm, like yes. they've, they've <laughs> dialed in more on the things that really, it's the same message, same things, but they're now understand why it, why it works. And they're more, they've let go of a couple of things that might've been on the edge that didn't work. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's such a brilliant kind of um, a summary of what it looks like and B how it works in our sport as well is if you look at, well, what's changed in the training, what have you, or coaching, you know, if we, we transported Igloy or Lydiard or whoever into our current day, like they'd be fine. Right. Yes. <laughs> the, the difference would be Lydiard would probably go, Oh, I don't need to like do X, Y, and Z this many times. I only needed to do it this many times right, right. or, or you call look, a, marath- a marathon training uh, sub t right. running i guess right. you sub t now for an hour or two hours a day <laughs> right Ex- exactly <laughs> like the, the he'd be a little bit more pre- precise a little bit more correct than kind of like the the whatever verbiage that that we had back then well, it reminds I, me of that quote from him or, or um a murray halberg right where he was like yeah later he went to this conference or this clinic and he came back and he said all right, gents. So yeah, this this stuff is anaerobic, and then this stuff's aerobic. All right, and that's what they're calling it these days. And then Halberg's like, "Coach, how does that change anything we're doing?" He goes, "Doesn't change it a lick. <laughs> it's just so aerobic is the slow stuff, and anaerobic's the fast stuff." He goes, "You got it, mate." And it was like, it was just it gave more precise language at the time. I mean, and now we know that the anaerobic threshold is complete bullshit from George Brooks's, you know, um, work and his seminal review on that and all that good stuff but it's just the evolution right but they knew what worked but just the label is all that changes (laughs) yes the label changes which allows us to understand and all that stuff so yeah yeah, those were those were some of the interesting insights i mean it's a awesome it's a cool experience so yeah it's i mean it just it's uh comforting to hear that the art of coaching is still revered and understood to be a, you know, uh, game changing element, even at the highest level, when like, a lot of the media messaging tends to be on like this overly structural analytics, 
right? And we tend to think like, I need to have this dialed in. But even what those people are talking about at this, the highest level of competitive performance is the art. You, you know, and this is, so this reminds me of another panel I watch, but Shane Battier, you know, the mm-hmm. NBA play, yeah. former NBA player, very smart guy. And he was very into like the analytics, right? Even in his career. But he said, he made this comment. He said, they were asking him, I was like, well, if you played today and you had this more precise stuff, would you want the analytics team to, you know, drop this in your lap and say, you know, if for your shot, you know, if you did this, you do a little bit better. And he said, no, this is my shot, man. This is like, this is, this is the thing I've been working on for years and years and years and years. And he said, if someone I didn't know very well and was on the analytics side just told me, hey, if you move your elbow here and did this, like I would have blown him off. But he said, here's the difference. If a coach I was working with for my career or we were dabbling with or whatever, if they knew that information and then coached me up on this, I would have listened to it because the, the, the relationship there on like was the key component, even on the accuracy of some of this stuff. Now, some things he would just be like, yeah, if there was a blaring analytics stuff, like someone told me, I'd be like, oh, that's obvious. Right. But I think it, it came back down to, again, it's like that relationship part is like, the data, the analytics can guide and inform us as coaches. But it's not like we walk over and we say, you know what? If uh, if you would have run, you know, uh, whatever, if you would have run 5% lower than your lactate threshold and your lactate from this to this and this, you would have been more successful. Like most of us are going to be like, what? Right? Like, What? That's not the create buy-in. If you go over and coach it up in your style and say, you know what, like this for this workout, like it would be more productive. Like we'd get a bigger bang for our buck if we did it a little bit this way. And then I'm going to let the reins loose at some point. You're probably going to get more positive or responsiveness. So it's a little of how you coach this up in the human component, even when we're using the data. Right. And that kind of brings us to our main topic, which is the motivational climate that we create as coaches is very important, you know, because it creates the boundaries with which in we perceive the world and operate. And, you know, everything we've been kind of talking about now just reminds me a lot of, you know, ecological dynamics where perception is reality, right? And it's, it's so important that our perception is aligned with the direction or motivation that we an underlying motivation we have to kind of get the outcomes we want and it's super hard for sometimes new coaches to grasp i mean i was deep into what was considered at the time our analytics when i became a new coach right i remember you you two were steve like you did a lot of lactate testing we tracked our miles to the point we looked at our paces you know to the point tenths, hundreds, right? Oh, I ran this mile in five flat point zero four, like that mattered, <laughs> you know, but when you, when you're not really sure of the art, you do need maps to guide you. And those, those hard numbers are very comforting. But like I was talking to my wife today, like now coaching high school, like there really is, we don't talk about miles. Don't talk about splits. Don't talk about anything. I'm most concerned with impacting their psychological 
orientation and making them excited to thrive and compete. And, you know, I was telling them when they were breathing really hard and heavy during that 400 meter Juilliard day, and they're looking at me like, oh, this is tiring. I'm exhausted. Go, hey guys, this is the price of fitness. This is what getting in shape feels like. And then, you know, I, these are smart kids. So I'd be like, you know, the mitochondria that you learn about in biology, this is how we make new mitochondria through this type of stimulus. And they're like, oh, okay. And it's just like, you know, trying to relate things they know, but also understand like we're doing it in a safe dosage, safe way that is challenging in the moment. But, you know, sure enough, like one of the new kids who was brand new at running, came up to me a sophomore after seven days he goes i go well how was it go oh gosh a lot easier than last week last week it's like i could barely breathe and now it's like it's still hard but man it's so much easier compared to last week go good that's great you know and of course that's mitochondrial biogenesis and the training effect taking hold because it's so rapid but you know i don't tell them that but at the end of the day like that's the direction we want to go right and as coaches we want to know these things because as you know george brooks eloquently put it we know the general direction of physiological reactions, but we just don't know the magnitude with each individual. And that's the game, right? It's like, who's going to be a higher responder, lower responder? Who's going to have higher sensitivity, lower spending? We don't know, but we know in the general direction we're going to get a stimulus to um, elicit a response. But everyone's different in terms of their magnitude. Absolutely. And I, I think that's what it gets at is like this this kind of um, nuance of it, right? It's like understanding, um, as you said, the kind of motivational climate and like how to convey and, and create that. Um, and I know on this topic, like where we want to go or what we talk about often is like that, that boundary setting, right? And having a you know to use the word climate and you you said you put this pretty eloquently before we talked which is like this performance or outcome versus mastery climate mm -hmm. and i think these two things interplay and i'm gonna i'm gonna put this and i think we confuse so much so i'm gonna step on my soapbox real quick hey and, drop knowledge steve i'll sit back and sip my coffee man drop me some knowledge <laughs> no so here's here's what i think often <laughs> happens is we confuse like the climate we're trying to create, we hear that excellence is based on high standards and high expectations and like performance and outcomes and blah, blah, blah. And what happens is that pushes us to set like extreme boundaries where we say that, you know, the classic idea is if performance and outcomes is, is all that matters, then like you've got to be at practice every time at the right time at the right space and my boundary that I'm going to, I'm going to draw a hard line in the sand of, you know, either you're here or you're not. And if you're not like you're in trouble or kicked off or what have you. Right. Um, and there's no, we often think this performance, we use this performance outcome orientation to, to draw these hard lines really rigid. And I think over time for most people that backfires. And in, in the, the reason is this, is because this is the argument I've always made on punishment and one that I think we know better in, in, in running than other sports. But let's use other sports. If 
you fail at something and get punished, whatever it is. You don't complete a drill. You don't. Sh- you show up two minutes late, and you get go- told to run laps. What is what's the ingra- what's the ingraining psychologically that is happening there, right? All all that's happening is the athlete ingrained psychologically. Oh, the reason that I show up on time is so that I don't get punished because running laps is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So what you've done there is you've ingrained the reason I do what I do is out of fear of like punishment. Right. Yeah, retribution. Mm-hmm. Retribution. And yep. running laps or the exercise is a negative thing that I should not want to do ever because, like, it's a punishment. Who wants it's to a, do punishments? Right. It's, it, it becomes an avoidance activity. Right. I want to avoid this activity. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is what we ha- what happens when we draw hard lines in the sand too often. And think about this as, as a coach. Like, even at the elite level, you know, I think the same thing applies. But for most of us at the high school or college level, like, what's our end game? What's our goal? Is it to squeeze every ounce of performance out of someone to make them look good so they can win the city championship or what have you? Or is it to develop human beings who can also, like, thrive and perform and, like, achieve their potential but like to me it's develop human beings because 99.9 percent of these people aren't going pro right they're you know there's no one's they're not winning olympic medals or what have you those are very rare to get athletes of that caliber um a so i I think we kind of miss the boat and go in this performance outcome orientation which then pushes us to set rigid boundaries yeah no 100 percent. like just to you know piggyback on that like our good friend um you know danny Mackey, when he you know after josh kerr won the olympic medal an olympic medal in the 1500 you know i asked him like hey you know what do you attribute that to i go josh josh won it i mean it, it's just the way josh is it's just josh i go well what was your role he goes i just helped him get to the starting line healthy that's it <laughs> Like, because if you just put Josh there, he's going to do what Josh does. And it's very true. Like when I was working with Michaela Fricker in the 800, you know, she was state state champ in high school, national champ in college at the division two level. And Michaela just went into beast mode on race day and Michaela in races. And that's, I mean, she brought, as I call it, 10% extra, right? Then she went and practiced. Like she practiced, she tried, but Michaela was Michaela. And all I had to do was just get her to the starting line, kind of fit, kind of healthy, and she'd do her thing. And time and time again, like it's kind of piggybacking what you talked about, right? Uh, in the Sloan Conference, it's like the people who, you know, are clutch, they just have a different calculus than everyone else, right? We, we spend so much time on qualifying or like getting to the, 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 the dance or the, a ticket to the show that we forget once we're there and the spotlight's on and it's like, you got to go it's not your training physically. It's what's between the, the ears. Right. And it's the same deal with the motivational climate. We as coaches, you know, aspire to create because, you know, I anchor this in mastery and performance. And so here's the difference, right. Just from a clinical technical perspective, you know, for those who aren't aware the a mastery climate rewards effort more than ability or outcome. So in it coaches like reward success in players when they improve and develop their skills. 
and they encourage players to learn via trial and error uh, and self-evaluate their performance and progress. And, you know, the ending result or outcome is a secondary um, ambition, you know, and it's not the primary focus. It's develop the person. An example of this is like my kettlebell coach, really good coach. Like, so we're doing single arm kettlebell or double arm, double kettlebell swing. So holding a kettlebell in each hand, first time I'd done it. So I was doing him and he was just watching me, watching me. And we were doing like 20 rounds, right? 20 minutes of this. After about round number six or seven, he saw, okay, I consistently wasn't figuring out the correct type of grip to have. I was gripping it like I would with a single arm kettlebell or, or double arm on one kettlebell. But he's like, no, you need to turn your, um, you need to rotate your uh, hands to the side a little bit. We call it a grip. And he never told me or talked to me about a grip before at all. And then I did it and it was way more dynamic, way more fascial, way more springy. I go, okay, thanks. What he was doing, right, is what I would do. You observe someone's solution dynamic when presented with a novel task, make sure they're not hurting themselves first, second, then try to see, okay, this is a consistent pattern. They're not figuring it out. Then after a little while, you create intervention. Now I'm not looking to win any kettlebell swinging championships here. I'm doing it as a mastery, um, you know, endeavor just to get better at getting better. Now, in a different scenario, right? Say we're in a performance climate. Well, performance climate is when the coach stresses the importance of outcome. That is the all that matters, result and outcome. That's all, we're exploiting this to get that. And all that is, you know, of value is how you stack up to other people, how and we stack up to other people either by, you know, this hierarchy of status, whether it be points per game, race times, you know how many miles per week you run, whatever. It's always, there's always a scorecard. There's always a scoreboard and you're always trying to win no matter the, the game, whether meaningful or unmeaningful. Had we been in that performance environment, my kettlebell coach, his, you know, um, counsel wouldn't have been, hey, change your grip necessarily. Maybe he would have, but he said, hey, you need to swing a, a bigger weight because it makes me look bad to other clients here if you're not swinging a heavy weight because you're a man. So I need you to swing the heaviest weights possible. I don't care how you do it. Just do it because it makes me look good, right? Or it makes you look good and you'll get stronger by swinging a heavier weight, even though you have crap technique. <laughs> so again, it's just different orientations. And it's not that one climate's worse than the other from a motivational perspective, but you know, and a lot of successful climates have elements of mixed in of both. But that's the art of coaching, right? Is knowing when to, as we say, push and pull. And mastery is kind of more that, you know, that um, that kind of gentle nudge and that 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 pulling of people, pulling them up, lifting them up, lifting their spirits. Performance climbs are more push, 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 force them to do something even when they're not ready, because all that matters is the scoreboard at the end of the day. It, exactly. It's <laughs> it's just a different focus, and I think. The key here is this, is that mastery climates can get you to the same or better performance than a performance climate, but it goes there in a different way. In a slower way, but it's when you get there, it's also more sustainable. <laughs> right. It, it, it really is. It's, it's like the, the quick fix versus the slow, steady road. Right. Mm -hmm. It's I'll, I could do this and I should say not to take it this route, but there is some data on this. If you are in a obsessive kind of outcome environment, obsessive performance environment, guess what? Your likelihood in business to like cheat, to get the or commit fraud, to get the outcome 
goes up and your likelihood to cheat in sport to get the outcome goes up. (laughs) Why? Because when we make the performance or the outcome the sole self-defining thing, then cheating to get to that place makes some logical sense in your brain because it's like, oh, this is all that matters. Like, this is how I'm judged. This is the be all end all. This is all anybody cares about. So I'm going to get it no matter how I get it. And yeah, that win, win at all cost mentality. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, there's lots of research on that. This is just fascinating inside and outside of sport. So I think we have to be very careful and thinking, a high performance, high excellence culture is like this performance outcome. And I would, I would push that it's, it's, it's not, it's a mastery focus. And if you understand that, then it pushes you away from the like fear-based motivation and more of a motivation of, you know, this holistic um, and intrinsic. Yeah. It's, you know, it's we've talked about it before, you know, Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite versus Finite Game, which is based on these concepts that were developed by James Cars, right? And that's what we want to do is ideally for me, a mastery climate is playing the infinite game. And the infinite game is more transformative on the person versus say a performance centric climate is playing the finite game, keeping score of today, and that's much more transactional. I've done both. I've been in both types of climates. I've had success in both types of climates. When I was a younger coach, I was definitely much more transactional, uh, much more performance centric, just, you know, wanted that status of people running fast to one, you know, get the rewards for my ego, financial, what have you. As I aged, though, I realized that was a very, it was a false sense of success. It was like, there was nothing there. It was like this black abyss versus when I started to transition to the more transformative um, kind of coaching style, mastery focused climate, um, infinite game mindset, it just became much more rewarding and richer day after day after day. And you know what? The results still came, <laughs> but the overall experience and the overall growth you saw in people, and it wasn't necessarily the high performers that grew more because they still grow in that environment. It was also kind of that second tier, third tier, or what I call that borderline athlete who could blossom into some, you know, someone special for them or really level up, like skip several levels. You know, uh, Bowerman call them hamburgers, right? No one that's ever going to be like the highest achieving performer on the team or in the state or whatever your, your ranking system is. But for them, they could 10x who they are if they are in the right climate. And then those people started to really elevate as well. And so it became a rising tide lift all boat mentality versus when it was just transactional, only the um, high performers would elevate as well. And it was really interesting. There was some research on this by um, out of the UK on uh, female rugby players. And they looked at, uh, I think, like 140 different female rugby players in different um climates, uh, motivational climates, the mastery climate, performance climate. And they looked at uh, athletes who were a little bit, as we'd say, kind of more on the narcissistic or um, transactional spectrum who are like, I just want to win. I just want to win. I just want to win. And the hypothesis was that the more narcissistic, uh, you know, winning focused athlete, she was going to thrive more in a performance motivational climate than a mastery climate. And, and then the, the, um, uh, you know, kind of more balanced ego athlete was, you know, going to 
blossom more in a master climate and a performance climate. And what they realized, what they did, they did a study and everything. And then it was like, oh, the narcissistic athlete performed well in both climates, no matter what. <laughs> and then the, the ego, the more balanced ego athlete did perform better in the mastery climate than the performance climate. So if you think as a coach, the only way to get results is in a performance climate, you're not wrong, but it's for a certain subset of athlete population. The mastery climate overall elevates everyone no matter what. And they attributed it to the fact that in a mastery climate, every athlete gets more of the coach's attention because coach is focused on developing the person and sees the person. Uh, we had a, a great quote in the clubhouse from a scholar. You know, His mentor said, human first, athlete second. I was like, I'm stealing that. So I stole it. Joey, big shout out. You know, like it's a it's a great um, heuristic, human first, athlete second, and then everyone elevates. And it doesn't matter because the more narcissistic athlete, one of their traits of being a narcissist is attention. So they got more attention from coach because of the mastery climate. But so the second tier, third tier, more ego balanced athlete, they also got more attention. So, I mean, yeah, really fascinating study. And I, I think, again, we're taking a pretty broad, wide sample set of 140 you know, or so rugby um, players at that kind of elite sub elite level. So it's a wide, wide insight into like, hey, actually, mastery climates is the way to go for the group as a whole. That's fascinating that I was not aware of that research. That's interesting. I mean, it makes sense, though, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. it's like, yeah, it, it it makes a lot of sense, and I think I, I I think that's it's also one of the kind of more underrated things is we think we're like fooled, we're fooled <laughs> into thinking that if we just focus on the outcomes and like obsess over that, that that's the path that's going to get us there, but it's really it it, it it's not right. It's <laughs> it, it it's almost like the uh, the 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 paradox of effort. Right. If you're a sprinter, you think, oh, if I give more effort, that's going to get me there faster. But it's actually not right? right. You need to you need to figure out how to give effort with while relaxing without the tension, right. without forcing <laughs> it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it is, is the, the, the kind of performance outcome obsession is like essentially giving effort by forcing. And the mastery is like, hey, we're still working hard but we're going to do this by essentially relaxing into this. Right. Yeah. It, and that's, I mean, it goes back to what you guys are talking about. The Sloan conference, right. Is like high performers are going to be high performers no matter what, because it's so yeah. intrinsic, that motivation. So it doesn't matter the shittiest team environment possible, you know, overly domineering, you know, hard ass coach. Like you can't, if you miss one practice, you're one minute late, that's a hundred burpees, whatever. It doesn't matter. The performance oriented, person's going to do that but that that borderline person that person that could go either route that motivational climate is the trigger that is their perception yeah. of that climate is the thing and so when we can step back in coaches and go oh it doesn't matter for the high achieving person whatever climate it is they're just going to high, high achieve period but if i can get a bigger pool of athletes to achieve at a higher level by adopting you know, elements of this type of strategy and, um, and create boundaries for this type of climate that will create this perception and motivation. Boom. There you go, man. We see, we just found the secret to success. 
There, that's what we're all about here on this podcast. Figuring, we go deep. Figure we thing go deep. Out, figuring things out. But I really do. And, and you know, I'm going to simplify this for people or give a concrete example that I know we've talked about is, is, is think about it like this. And I'm going to use the like forcing by letting it happen thing. So, for example, if we create an environment where we essentially force everybody to like practice starts at this time, like if you don't show up, you get punished, blah, 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 blah. Like essentially what we're doing is falling into that trap of like forcing because of performance, right? If we create that mastery type environment of like, this is where you want to show up to get better, right? This is a priority because like we're trying to improve holistically on stuff. I think what it does is it creates an environment where that motivation shifts where it's like, oh, I'm choosing to show up here. And I get it. People might say it like that's a little idealistic, but I think, you know, that's what we tried to cultivate when I was at Houston is, and I would tell athletes this, is instead of being like, you know, practice is at this time, if you don't show up, like you're going to be in trouble, blah, blah, blah. I approached it like this. I said, look, we're trying to get better. Like you want to be at practice. Practice is fun. It's enjoyable. Like we're going to work hard, but we're going to, we're going to get better as a team. Um, now I realize I would tell them, I realize that you are college students. So if you know, you're up late at night because you're studying for a final or a test and you say, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to make it at 7am for practice. Text me and tell me that. Right. It's like, I'm not going to read me out. I'm going to be like, Oh, that makes sense. Right. Or if you, for whatever reason, it was essentially, you know, kind of like open book. You know, if there's a good legitimate reason for you not to be here, just let me know. And I'm not going to be like, oh, like abandon that test studying. Like you need to show up at this, this, and this. I'm be like, you know what? Holistically, this makes sense. Totally fine. I don't want it to happen like every day of every week but totally fine. And you know what? Like 90, I would say like 99% of athletes that I had during that time never abused that, right? Every once in a while, you'd get a kid who like, and and then you knew, you knew like, oh, maybe this kid's priorities are elsewhere and running isn't the thing for them or what happened. And more often than not, that's what happened, right? Like if, if for, for that, like one individual, you're like, oh, this person's like, a little bit abusing that and then like by next by the next semester like they no longer wanted to run and that's fine like i tell them that's fine go great prioritize your academics or whatever you know passions you're pursuing and i think again it's not ideal it's not like magic but i think framing it in that way where there's nuance is is much better than having the like crazy hard line that often backfires. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, it's a product of our media and culture. We tend to um, amplify and exaggerate. And also, you know, our, our interest is peaked by extremisms. And so when you see someone who's just like, I'm a total hard ass, like say the old Bobby Knight model, right. Um, for coaching basketball. 
and it get results. So I, I want results. So I guess I'll pursue that and just be that extreme about it because that's the only way to do it. You know, we know it doesn't work or it only works for a very, very finite period of time. It's not sustainable. Um, you know, I'll give an example, like say for the high school, I, you know, uh, coach at right now, like it's a very much a liberal arts mindset high school, right? Um, the athletes as the student bodies, you know, um, encouraged to explore and pursue a lot of things. So like I have kids who are in the play, the spring play doing robotics, you know, some kids have an after school job that they work like, okay, I work at this, you know, coffee shop, drive through coffee shop, blah, 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 blah. So what I told them is like, all right, guys, here is our general practice pattern. You know, Monday and Thursday are speed days, Tuesday and Friday are speed endurance days, Wednesdays are chill day, you know? And so as long as you can communicate with me where your whereabouts are on every day, I'm totally fine with what's what you're doing. Cause I, I, I respect that you have a lot of diverse interests and you're pursuing, you know, and sculpting, your, you know, the foundations of your self-concept and self-identity. But what ends up happening, right? is because we create this climate where we say, okay, communication can be held accountable on that. We need the communication. But then two, our overall track program philosophy is a unified team concept. So athletes actually rotate through and can do multiple events. It's not just specialization. So I have distance runners who are throwers and I have, you know, there's throwers who are sprinters. I have distance runners who are also jumpers. So we're always like, okay, here, we'll do the distance kind of training session, then go throw or we'll do, you know, do the sprint. Some people are like, you know, kind of that long sprinter, right? So then they'll do the sprint session, come over the distance and do that and do 400, 800 type stuff, right? And we have a really good coaching staff that understands this concept. And it's not about my athletes, this athletes or sharing athletes. It's about what's best for the athlete is what's best for the team. And then lo and behold, right? Like our boys team last year, in their division, won the state title by, I think the most points ever, if not the second most points ever, like total blowout. Like we just blew them out. Like, I mean, but it, everyone was thriving, right? Like this kid won a state title out of nowhere. This kid won a state title out of nowhere. Like people who were like number five or six on the like performance charts, right? Through the season from a mark standpoint at state performed and won. And like, they were surprised, they were shocked, right? But it's because of the motivational climate we had that I attribute a lot of that uh, outside success or uh, exaggerated success to, because we as coaches knew we'd be in the hunt, but we didn't know we'd dominate. Like it was like a runaway thing. And so you see like the proofs in the pudding. And it wasn't just because of my own personal subset in the distance crew. You know, I attribute it to my head coach, my, you know, my, my colleagues in the sprints and jumps and throws. Like we all adopted that mindset and we're all compatible with it. And it so makes for like a really good work environment. Cause I've been in definitely like you have Steve, those um, coaching environments where it is divisions and clicks and my group, my athlete, mind this, and it's me versus you, you know, this internal, like, you know, sibling um, rivalry type thing. And it's just like, ugh, for all, I, for all the potatoes in the world, I'm old enough now and wise enough to like, not pursue that because you know people ask me hey do you want to coach here do you want to coach here and i look at the high school and the culture i go yeah no way <laughs> it's not happening yeah no way uh-uh like i'm very happy where i am here <laughs> because again if if you know what your cup of tea is and for me it's more transformative mastery um and then you're offered to 
drop in and go to a climate or a culture that's more performance or transactional, there's just going to be inherent friction, you know? And so it's just, it's worth not even like participating. Yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, we've had to learn both of us in some, in most cases, the hard way to, uh, yes, (laughs) yes. to to, like watch out for that transactional environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Because and that's often what happens when you're in the kind of winner take all obsessed environment is it becomes very transactional, meaning like what do we mean is like all like I only the coach, like I only care about this athlete because they're running fast, which then makes me look better or whatever have you. Right. It's and that just doesn't work. And I got to say, outside of that, what I've realized, too, is that 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 transactional side is just fear. Right. It's like, oh, like I'm only known if I've coached whatever NCAA champion or national champion or Olympic medalist or what have you. So you derive your sense of status from and sense of self-worth from like those accolades. And that puts you in a fear based world because like, well, if you don't coach X, Y, and Z, it's like an existential crisis because like, that's where you'd find yourself work. And it makes people go off the rails. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, but the, the best, the best coaches, I, in my opinion, that I know, they are just as concerned with the development of, you know, the athlete who's lowest on the performance total as, you know, the athlete highest on. I mean, Mike Smith and I have had lots of talks about people you've never heard of from NAU or, you know, even like when he was trying to build up the women's program, a distance program to be, you know, highly competitive at a national level. Like that was a big point of focus. Like it wasn't like he was just worrying about the men's team that's winning titles and making him look good. Danny Mackey, same deal. He'd be like, oh yeah, everyone wants to talk about Josh Kerr or Kaz Loxham or whoever. And People are like, why is this person on the books beast that's really running non-impressive performances and barely making the national champ US national championships, whatever? But Danny's just as concerned about their development as he is for their stars. And that's rare in those high performance, high, highly competitive environments. And we don't see that as outsiders often or as an audience oftentimes, because we the media pumps, you know, to us the sensationalism of these outside perfor- outsized performances by these high achievers. But the real coaches that I know, they're really good because they care about everyone on the chart. Number yeah, one, number whatever. You know, I think this is worth highlighting because I think you're spot on as we we look at the kind of whatever, but it's it really is the holistic. Like the story that comes to my mind, and I've told this before, but there were so many instances where I'd be at the track working with Tom Telez and he'd see some random like junior high or high school kid, most likely football, working on his 40. And what would Coach Telez do again after he's coached all these Olympians and world records? He'd walk over to that kid and he'd teach him how to start out of blocks or out of a, a three point stance or whatever it is, you know? And you're just like, like, what? And this kid has no idea. This happened so many times. Why? Because it's just like coaches coach, you know? And 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 this is what you see. It's no different than, you know, if we look at, speaking of Sloan, it's like you look at really good NBA coaches who last for a long time, like a Greg Popovich. What are they good at? 
developing like people holistically understanding that basketball is not the like well it's important for them and the fans and the athletes it is not the only thing and we're not just trying to win a championship um by any means possible and i saw that again working with really good athletes or talking to really good athletes and coaches at this conference like people generally like cared you know but I think too often what happens is we prop up the win at all costs and, you know, more examples come to mind, but it's like <laughs> if anybody ever knew or interacted with like Frank Gagliano is a great oh, example. Oh gosh. Yeah. Gags. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I remember even to this day, I had very little idea who Gags was because he was with the farm team at the time. But once I transferred schools in college, I get this random call and it's, it's Gags saying, hey, Steve, we've never met. You might not know who I am, but, like, I know you perform really well in high school and struggle a little bit. I just want you to know, like, you know, you're still capable of performing well, and if there's ever anything I can do, like, just let me know if you need some advice, but you're very capable. You're going to do well. And I'm like, Gex didn't know me. I never (laughs) talked to him in my life, right? But, like... That's the kind of like coaches who truly do succeed are the ones who like look at it holistically and like aren't transactional. Yeah. I mean, people have been coached by gags, like just talk to about him with such affinity and having worked with gags, um, you know, with the oxy high performance beat that came the whatever, wherever it's called now, the distance class, I don't even know, but you know, having just been able to have that mentorship from gags behind the scenes and, you know, I don't talk about it much because again, it's, it's not, uh, wasn't direct mentorship, but I mean, anytime he just be, Hey, you get in the gym, you get in a pickle, call me, you get your advice, you call me, Hey, pick up the phone. You call, like, it was just like, yes, yes, I will do that. And I did it multiple times. Right. And that example uh, you know, it's something we should celebrate more often and make known and highlight as we're doing here. But it just kind of coming full circle back to Tom Telez. I'll never forget, Steve, like when we were at the Olympic trials, you know, several years ago and like you were coaching, I think it was at the time, Natasha or something. And, you know, I was coaching the high performance West ladies and we were like really concerned about our women trying to make the Olympic team. And then here's Tom Telez here with his javelin thrower who is not even going to make it out of the rounds, <laughs> like, like literally just happy to be here. And like probably the most like successful coach arguably or on the, on the Mount Rushmore in modern U S track and field history. And here he is with just a, a no, a, a nobody javelin thrower that he's like, Oh yeah, I just found this kid. Talked to this kid out in the middle of, you know, saw him at a football prayer. I don't even know what the story was. And he was just happy to be there with this kid supporting this kid's, you know, essential Mount Everest and the ego uh, surrender on that man to be able to do that and be at the Olympic trials environment and be like, Oh yeah, I'm not even here to coach like a world record or gold mouse or something that even makes the Olympic team. Like we're just happy to be here. It was really refreshing to see that. <laughs> yes. And the, the backstory is you're correct. He pulled him off a of football practice and said, you can throw a javelin. <laughs> And then, yeah. like, led them to the Olympic trials, like, a year or two later, whatever it was, like, in a short period of time. And that's and that's what it is about. Like, it's the the coach's coach, you know? 
and and I'll be honest, to, not to belabor the point, but um, Coach Chalez is, gosh, I think ninety now. You know what he does about once a week? He walks. He walks over from from where he lives. He walks over to the the. I think it's a junior high track. Whatever it is, it's like you know a, a mile away, right? Maybe a little less, but something like that. And he works with these like this like family that has like a freshman and maybe a sophomore kid who run like the 400 and 800 and one might long jump. Like there's a variety of events and they're just like this family that he like got to know and and just like works with their kids. And it's just like, here's the guy who coached, you know, Carl Lewis to the long jump gold, like, you know, whatever, four times. And Leroy Burrell. I mean, the list yeah. goes on and on. <laughs> and, and he's just like, and he'll tell me, is like, man, this like 12 year old kid, look at him long jump. He'll pull out like video. <laughs> so you're just like, but that's, but that's what it is. It's like the coach's coach of like, no, I'm not using you. Like it's mastery and mastery for the 12 year old trying to learn how to, you know, double hitch kick is mastery just like it is for Carl Lewis trying to jump 30 feet or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you just see that emo- that motivational climate he creates where, you know, when, when I talk to Tom Velez, obviously you know him a lot better, but I could just tell, and what inspired me was he had a love for life and he had a love for just people develop, pe- people development, developing human beings holistically in through the vehicle of sport, right? And it's like, we don't talk that about that often enough, like having just a, a love for life because when you love life and you love what you're doing, Every day is a gift. Every day is, you know, uh, beautiful, right? And and that does ooze and trickle out of you and helps to create this motivational climate because athletes and people, we are perceptive to that. If you, you know, if the price of admission and the price of um, uh, membership in your motivational climate is just try your best and see what you can do and do it every day and I'll be here to support you. That creates a lot of stability and safety. But if what you ooze is a performance orientation climate of like, you only have worth and merit and are valuable of my time and attention. If you abide by all these rules and regulations, you got to be here at this time, no mispractice whatsoever. The the only successful way to have a successful program is by this and that. We got to do this. We got to do this. You got to run at least this many miles a week. And now you come with all these qualifiers. And it's this laundry list of things that's like, this is the only way to get my ex- approval and acceptance. That does not create stability. That creates stress and anxiety to the max. And we know high performer or intrinsically motivated high performers will perform in that environment context because they can do it in any context. But you're going to miss so many people's hearts and minds you could capture and develop with that orientation, I think. I think you're spot on. And I think we've, we've, you know, it really is the framework. And, and just a reminder of what you're trying to do when you're young, it's easy to get caught up in the game of chasing performance outcome obsession, but it just doesn't, it doesn't work well. It leaves you hollow. Like, I mean, honestly, like I thought when I would coach a person who made it to the Olympic trials or a person who make it to USA's or a national champion at whatever level or champion at every level, like I'd be fulfilled. And it, it was just empty. 
it didn't matter, right? I mean, people just went about their day. People went about their lives. Almost no one paid attention, right? Because it really is just you and a small subset of people who actually give a rat's ass, <laughs> You right. know, but going to practice every day now, right? Like someone asked me like, Hey, how do you like it? I go, Oh my God, this is like the most fun I've had coaching, you know, in several years because my orientation is different and the climate I create is different. And it's just wonderful to see all these kids blossom, like even small little victories, right? Like my freshman boys from last year who are now sophomores, of course, whenever we try to do a pacing activity where it's like, Hey guys, I want you to kind of run around this pace, wild pacing strategies, right? They go out first hundred to run a quarter and 80 and they go out in like 15. And it's like, guys, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and so we worked on teaching them uh, more appropriate, like how to uh, essentially um, self-navigate better pacing in the, even the first hundred. And now this year as sophomores, they, you know, if I, in the first week and a half practice, I've kind of pulled the pace card every now and again but they hit it, nail it spot on. And I'm like, and they're like, I'm like, man, your pacing is a lot better this year than last year. That's amazing. Like he goes, you know, and they see that, um, uh, esteem and, um, you know, me acknowledging that, that acknowledgement, right. Is the key thing. And a big smile comes on their face and it's just like, yeah, yeah, I'm getting better. I'm improving. And I mean, it's those small little wins, but acknowledgement of those small wins that, you know, is going to be the steamrolling effect for them because the fact that they're freshmen and came back as any high school coach knows is huge. Like sometimes you don't get freshmen back, like they go pursue something else. Right. And if you can keep a young developing um, prepubescent puberty hitting uh, adolescent in your um, sport, well, by the time they become, you know, start to grow armpit hair and what have you as a boy, they become a junior and senior, you get all those positive growth hormones and, you know, testosterone in them you don't know what could happen. Like, I mean, they can become a completely different animal and that might be your next state champion. That might be your next, you know, big point score, but you just got to let that development pathway um, and time horizon to manifest, but you've got to keep, have them keep coming back to practice every year, every day. <laughs> yep. That, I mean, that's what it is, right? It's, it's like creating that kind of long tail synergy, you know? Mm -hmm. So, that's our soapbox. If you, if you want to jump on it, guess what? The best place to do it is to join our scholar program where we have conversations on this. This actually originated out of a conversation on the scholar clubhouse. Yeah. Where... Shout out to, uh, to Nick in this clubhouse. Like Nick, you know, he, he, he uh, posed this question. He goes, a coaching friend of mine says the only way to have a successful program is by not letting any athletes miss any practice for a reason, including work. Nick wasn't so sure. He asked scholars for their thoughts. We had about six or seven or eight different perspectives on that, all very insightful, um, all very novel and all, you know, very um, useful, right? And what it did is it gave Nick tools or perspective to make his own decision for his program, but also too for observers or participants, it sparked this interesting conversation and dialogue. And that's where this is happening in real time. And it's influencing what Steve and I, you know, talk about as well. Absolutely. So get on board, check it out. Thanks again join for us, listening. Join us, join us, yes, join us. Yes, join us, please. Join the movement. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks again for listening.